after losing my mother and then being in lockdown, I looked at the material and I realized I'm always grieving. The poem is, is always an elegy and a love poem as well. And I think that's also very close to my Buddhist practice, particularly with doing death meditation. For me, the poem is a profound death meditation. And it's a place where death doesn't even have to be mentioned in order to be felt, which is something that I'm really interested in as an artist, is how do I have a felt absence effect in the work? And sometimes you can feel that death and dying haunts the work you know, without it having to be named. Hello and welcome to Life As It Is. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. You've just heard Buddhist poet and novelist Ocean Wong discussing his new book, Time as a Mother. Written in the aftermath of Wong's mother's death, the collection offers an intimate portrait of grief, loss, and survival. In today's episode of Life As It Is, my co-host Sharon Salzberg and I sit down with Ocean to discuss Buddhist rituals of mourning, the poem as a death meditation, and how to navigate the eight worldly winds as a writer. To close, he reads a poem from his new collection. So I'm here with poet and writer Ocean Vuong and my co-host Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Ocean. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you both. Hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. That's a pleasure for us, too. And congratulations on your new book. Thank you. It's strange publishing, I think, particularly as a Buddhist, because it's just another manifestation of your ideas. So I try not to see it as a parade. I have to remind myself that this is not the top of the mountain, if you will. Right. Well, the new collection is Time as a Mother, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it. It's hard to say, you know. I write one poem at a time, and I write very slowly. My first collection took eight years. This one took about six. And I realized that so much of my work is around loss and grief, and so much of Buddhism is the investigation therein. So I think for me, the American enterprise of curiosity and art making is one in which we reckon with loss. This is a country filled with ghosts. And so the private and then the personal and then the social loss all came to a head after I lost my mother to breast cancer in 2019, November. And then in March, we were in COVID. Mm -hmm. I realized, you know, it was a, a, a profound moment that I think we all go through when we lose our mothers, or our parents, that this is samsara. This is why, you know, we're here. It's, it is dukkha. And the question for the artist is, how do I make sense of it? And to me, language is the perfect architecture in which you can build something where we can then enter collectively, because it's a communal tool, in order to feel and think in. So poems happen to be the perfect medium. Did you write most of this in lockdown during the pandemic, or had it already begun? I wrote about half of it before, but after losing my mother and then being in lockdown, I looked at the material and I realized I'm always grieving. The poem is, is always an elegy and a love poem as well. And I think that's also very close to my Buddhist practice, particularly with doing death meditation. For me, the poem is a profound death meditation. And it's a place where death doesn't even have to be mentioned 
in order to be felt, which is something that I'm really interested in as an artist, is how do I have a felt absence effect in the work? And sometimes you can feel that death and dying haunts the work you know, without it having to be named. You grew up in a Buddhist family, and you've described your introduction to Buddhism as coming through rituals and care. Can you share more about the Buddhism of your childhood? Yeah, like, like most Vietnamese Mahayana traditions, it's heavily ritualistic. A lot of us, because my family were illiterate, they were not that privy to the lectures or the sutras or the teachings. They would hear it, the oral teachings at the temple. But most of it was this adherence to these rituals. And it wasn't until my mother passed that I realized the great wisdom and value in having these rituals and why so many Buddhist traditions have been doing this for over a thousand years in so many continents. Kneeling on this tiled floor for two hours and prostrating, you know, over a hundred times holding an incense to your forehead as it burns and burns your fingers. <laughs> your hands are trembling from the ache. I realized that this whole ritual was for us. It wasn't for the statues or the bodhisattvas. It was for the grievers. Because now our pain, the pain that we felt inside, was now manifested bodily. And in fact, that act was a sort of communion with body and soul. And so I, I felt utterly relieved to see those around me, my family members, the Sangha, in so much bodily pain from all this, which is, at one hand, nothing compared to the, the pain of the heart of losing your mother, but it suddenly made sense. It was a realignment of body and soul. And I said, oh, this is why. This is why we've been doing it. And whether you believe it or not, or understand the teachings or not, the rituals kind of force you or rather, you know, recruit you into aligning with your suffering. So it's a prolonged meditation. It was no different than walking meditation. Well, you later studied Buddhist texts. How did that change your relationship to the Buddhism you grew up with, or did it simply affirm it, deepen it? It deepened and expanded it, right? Because now I, I realize, oh, this makes sense, right? The incense it was about intention. It was about making offerings. It was about mentally, bodily meditation, somatic meditation, about intention. When you, you put the fruit on the altar, my mother was like, oh, the Buddha is hungry, right? or, or our ancestors are hungry, or look at, there's so much dust. We have to be better. We have to clean up the dust and, and be at our best when we're offering something to our ancestors and the Buddha. And profound moment of dignifying, you know, being present leaving your own concerns, your own selfishness, and literally cleaning and sweeping the small altar. It was still impactful, even when, if you don't know the teachings. Knowing the teachings really do just affirm it. It's like, oh, this was all part of the practice. The beauty of it is that it works whether you understand it or not. That's not always true with literature. You do have to know the words as a medium to finish the book and talk about it. But so much of the ritualistic aspects of it recruit the community to commit to mindfulness, even without knowledge of the text. And that was really beautiful. You know, you've also talked about when I congratulated you on the book, you mentioned that you wanted to remember that it's not the summit. I mean, I assume that you want to maintain a certain humility and not get carried away with accomplishment. 
I mean, that's the impression I got when you said that. But you've also spoken about the tension you experience between being a Buddhist and being a poet. In fact, you said that you plan to stop writing at some point, which I did not like hearing since I happen to love your writing. But can you share a little bit more about this tension? Will you actually stop writing? In the contemporary context that I live in, you know, being an author, publicity, touring, those are things that I'm speaking specifically to that I think mm-hmm. I feel are very antithetical to to being a successful or rather a skillful Buddhist. I think of the eight winds, right? The tree must stay firm in the eight winds. And it's really hard when you enter spaces and people, there's a worshipful attitude to it. And I joke and say, I think if I were to assess myself, I would say I'm severely overrated because there's there's so much <laughs> praise out there. And there's also criticism. But I think I realized that for me, the work is finished. So if my work is finished, the writing is complete, why does the praise still live, right? Still live on? And I think I'm very skeptical of that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm suspicious of that energy and I'm very wary of that because to me, making a book is akin to sending a raft down river and you have to stay on the shore to live your life. You can't live on the raft. And I think I've seen a lot of my peers live on that raft and that raft starts to chip away. And before you know it, they're neck deep in the river. It's a big struggle. It's a big shock when that raft goes away. And so for me, it has to be a difference between living and making. And you Mm -hmm. make something, you send it down river, but you have to stay on the ground, steady ground of the shore. So I don't know. I, I haven't found a way to do it well. If I do, then I hope I can still write because I love this. This is the only thing that I can do really well. I would still write for myself, but I guess what I mean is this public, commercialized right. function of publication. Yeah, because that's what I wanted to ask about the act of writing itself. I mean, it seems to me that when we do something really well, we have to get out of our own way. Absolutely. You, you realize that you're really a conductor of energies. I talk about this when people ask me about the themes and subjects in my books. And I say, when I wrote my first book of poems, right away, my peers and editors, even teachers would say, well, now what are you going to do? You already wrote about the Vietnam War and American violence. And now what? You know, as if I should now write about Mars. (laughs) But there's this capitalistic anxiety to reinvent yourself, to kind of see the book as an ultimate and finite container of ideas. And that's akin to this market anxiety of now better tasting, now with a brand new look. We see this when we shop all the time. But I wanted to have a different approach to my work as the books as conductors. They're conduits Mm -hmm. of the same energy, right? So they are, are material manifestations of conductors. And every book actually carries the same themes and obsessions, but with a different medium, a different approach. I have one more question before I turn this over to Sharon for a moment. How do you stay on shore? How do you stay grounded? It's hard. It's, you know, you have to keep doing it. When the praise comes, it feels good. And then you have to watch it, right? This is the watch, like watching the breath. Oh, there it is. I feel the rush of dopamine. When you start watching it, you realize it's divorced from you. And there's a certain truth that happens when you realize, oh, this has nothing to do with me. This is someone else's projection, which is valid, but I can't 
hold on to it, right? I can't become possessive of good news because then I would drift away. It would take me down with the current. And sometimes I'm good at it and sometimes I'm not. You know, I'm not in among the monastics who can be very stoic and control their demeanor. But sometimes I get the good email and I scream and jump, right? <laughs> so to me, that would be a failing. But sometimes, you know, it goes beyond you and you get swept away a bit. So I don't think I'm firmly on the shore. I think I get pulled a little bit and then I struggle upstream back on the banks, soaking wet. That's actually probably more accurate to my experience. Mm -hmm. So you grew up surrounded by storytellers. You've spoken about how you see writing as a kind of communal exchange. And I'm wondering if you can share more about how the styles of storyteller you encountered as a child influenced your poetry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think when we think of the refugee, we often think of a passive, needful, and often pandering subject and a victim of something. There's this kind of a perennial victimhood that is reductive to the identity of people, people who are very complex. And so for me, I, I, I like to kind of reorient how we see refugees as people who are actually incredibly creative and innovative and have to make, you know, life-saving decisions, not only for themselves, but the people they love. Like, in other words, Nobody survives by accident. Survival is an innovative act. And I saw that right away with the women in my family in that the stories they decided to tell, they have to make decisions. The mind can only hold so much. And so what do you remember? What do you leave behind? And they're doing cultural work, right? As a culture, we're having discussions now. Which work do we read and which work should we leave in the past, right? Who do we carry? Who's problematic? Which texts are harmful? We're doing this all the time as a culture. And often it's in institutions and discussions and syllabus. You know, I'm in institutions now as a professor and this happens. But I realized these women were doing this already, like, you know, on the boats as they're fleeing. They're deciding, what do I give to my children, to my grandchildren? What stories do I pass on? so that they can make use of. And then before you know it, you're at the, the heart of civilization. You can go back to the epic poets of Gilgamesh, Homer, the Iliad, and those texts were so vital to the flourishing of our cultures because they were civic sort of treaties, right? It's all about one's obligation to the community through a reciprocal civic bonds. And I felt the same thing happened with how they told stories, because there was always a lesson, right? There was always a purpose. There was always an allegory or a parable. Even when they told their own stories, you realize that they were edited down every time they told them. And these were actually master classes for a young future writer. I realized that I was at the heart of a master class. How my grandmother would pause over details. What details to leave in, what to gloss over, how she sped up time and how she slowed it down. I would learn much later in college, in Faulkner and Whitman and Toni Morrison. I said, oh, my grandmother was doing this intuitively. And so when I looked at my personal canon of creativity, the women who raised me are right up there with the Faulkners and the Joyces and the Virginia Woolfs and James Baldwin. Wow. You know, Ocean, you've talked about the language lab 
and the linguistic innovation that takes place in queer communities of color. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about the role poetry plays in articulating different possible futures. Yeah, it was always poetry's role. I always felt that as long as there were soldiers, there were poets. And I think that's always true, that the history of poetry is a history of displacement. It's the history of war. It's our species-wide condition. That's why I think it can never die, regardless of how we read it. There's conversations about the crisis of printing. But then now there's Twitter poetry, there's Instagram poetry. And because it's so portable, anytime you have a marginalized community, you realize that innovation occurs at the most portable and malleable forms of art. And this is true with hip hop and how hip hop blurs into poetry for communities of color. Spoken word traditions, right? You just need the self, the body, and it could happen anywhere. It has the power to interrupt. You don't need a plot or context. It doesn't need to be a setup. A poem can happen at any given moment. And the power to interrupt and the power to be portable is why it can cross so many borders in so many communities and why it means so much to so many people because you can participate in it. I tell my students this. I said, to be a nurse or a doctor, you got to get a nursing degree and then you got to go to medical school for eight years, maybe a decade. But if you want to be a poet, you could do it tonight. You could do it right now. And there's an incredible exhilaration of power that the form really offers you. Well, poetry itself, I find intimidating, even though I love language and words and I write. There's something about that particular kind of creation. Maybe I have to think of it more as just speaking a truth and not getting fancier than that, because in my mind, it's like incredibly beyond me. Yeah. Poetry is up against so much. Often, particularly in the 20th century, it was kind of cajoled into institutions. And the project of canonization started by Matthew Arnold in the 19th century was to prevent the working class and the peasantry from revolting. Right? He mm. saw that the Enlightenment created a lot of suspicion amongst Europe with uh, the church. And so the church was losing its hold on its power over the populace. And Matthew Arnold said, you know, how do we prevent what happened in France and America? How do we prevent revolution? This was at the time of Marx, you know, Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto. And so he said, what if we replace the church and Christianity with literature? And that's when you started, you began the English canon. And the English canon was very middle class. The poems that went in there, it was a way to kind of empathize with those who live under chandeliers, right? So if we realize that, oh, the rich also suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's actually interesting because at the heart of that is Buddhist rhetoric, but for absolutely sinister means, right? It's like, oh, we all suffer. So therefore, don't overthrow us, right? We're just <laughs> like you. <laughs> We're just like you. We suffer too. And so right away, it's now institutionalized. And then there's this sense that you have to decode it to know its secrets. And that was the great flaw of the institutionalization of poetry in the 20th century. And it still sticks. People feel frustrated with poetry because they feel like it's beyond them. Because we're taught to to plunder a text for a thesis. As soon as we're in elementary school, it's like, what's the summary of this passage? Right? Critical thinking and close reading tells us that we are outside of meaning. And reading will 
help us enter. We become hunters in the text. But that's only one way of reading. And it's a failure of our pedagogy. Because another way to read is to read a poem the way we experience weather. What is the meaning of rain? Rain doesn't have a secret. It exists. The same with music. You experience music. Why do we cry listening to Bach? There's no meaning inherent in the notes. This is true with mantras. There's no inherent meaning, but the intention creates a profound effect on the sonic wave and then the brain and then the emotions. And so part of my work as an educator is to kind of undo a lot of these strict ways of reading that has been hammered into our students. And they get really excited, but also really nervous. Like, just like you described, Sharon, they're like, oh my God, what, what do you mean? It could be anything. Right. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, just like, you know, weather and music, just experience it. And then you realize that there's so much pleasure, you know, and I have to turn to the Eastern poets who, by the way, were influenced by Buddhism in Isa and Basho, the 18th and 17th century Japanese poets. And one of my favorite Isa poems is the haiku crickets on a log floating down river, still singing. You don't need to decode that. You can, you can get a PhD on it if you like. Nobody would be upset, but you don't need to. It's there. So to me, poetry is both rhetoric and also the inaction of life as it is perceived. It's a phenomenological sort of approach. And there's no right or wrong way to experience it. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. I want to go back for a moment to influences you had as a child. You attended Baptist church services with friends where you say you developed an infatuation with Noah's Ark and the idea of building a vessel for the future when the apocalypse comes. And can you speak a little bit more about Noah's Ark, what it means to you, and what would you put in your vessel for the future? I thought it was real. First, you know, you're seven years old, you're going into a church, and the neighborhood I lived in in Hartford was mostly a black and brown church. I experienced these myths, and to me, they made perfect sense with the myth of Leilai that my grandmother would tell me about the king you know, who defended Leilai, who defended the Chinese invasion in ancient Vietnam, who went to the lake and summoned a turtle who leapt out of the lake and gave him the sword to defend the country. And so to me, <laughs> I, I thought that was real. And so when I heard Noah's Ark, I was like, yeah, that sounds right. This great flood coming. And then this responsibility of discernment, I think, which is so important for Christian thinking. And I think for me, it's, it's important for Buddhism too. That's another way to translate mindfulness is discernment. And what good things will you put in to what you make, regardless of what you're making? You can be a shoemaker or a poet like myself. But when, when you think about that, it becomes no longer a task or a job, but a vocation that is invested in a spiritual intention. And that makes the work so much better. And it also makes you so much better because you're now imbuing the object and the task with a personhood, right? A DNA of a selfhood. Even you can see it, someone who cooks a meal, they cook the same recipe, but the person who cooks it with intention and with love, that meal comes out a lot better. We've all seen that when we've cooked a meal, when we're stressed or we're hurried or anxious, it comes out you know, a little sloppy, not the way we want it. So Noah's Ark was so important to me because I realized, thinking back on it, that I always had the agency to decide 
what word? If the poem is the arc, then which words? And you have to kind of interrogate yourself. Why this word as opposed to the others? And it's a profound, elongated praxis of imbuing care into what you do. Well, something about what you're saying actually reminds me of, it's like reclaiming almost like the right to poetry. The right to creativity is like reclaiming the right to love. Because if we don't have a sense of agency, if we think it's all in the hands of another, someone judging us, someone assessing us, someone deciding, you know, if our effort is worthy or not, it's like feeling that love is in the hands of another and they either bestow it upon us or take it away, in which case we have nothing. But if we think of it both more as a capacity within ourselves that other people may ignite or inspire or threaten, but it's ultimately ours. And we need to kind of claim that with some joy and self-respect. And then it's like a whole other endeavor. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to think about it. Because I think we, we slip in too easily to seeing love as a transactional endeavor, mm-hmm. where it's like, do you love me? Do I love you? And so there's almost this one-to-one transaction that we demand of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more beautiful and proactive to see it as a capacious potentiality that we have. Yeah, that's really great. You know, you said, you talked about Noah's Ark, you talked about the turtle leaping out of the lake, and that you believed these things. I associate those sorts of beliefs with my childhood, and it's kind of like the obsession with literal truth ends up stamping those out. And you mentioned at one point that you began with truth and moved toward art or something like that. That was the trajectory. I wonder if there's anything analogous to coming back to that symbolic language as opposed to this sort of forced literal truth that sort of expunges any kind of creative thinking in terms of myth or these stories that we learned as children. Yeah, yeah. I think about this all the time because I think for me as an artist, there has to be an allegiance to wonder and awe and mystery, and a willingness to quest beyond facts and truth. And I think that's the artist's role, is to go to the cliff of knowledge and look over it and say, it looks terrifying, and there's no light, but what can I see with my little flashlight, with my little lamp? Sometimes you set your lamp down and you just start digging, and sometimes there's nothing there, and sometimes all of a sudden there's a flash of bone, and you've stumbled on something. And, And I think that It's a very difficult endeavor for the soul. It's very expensive on the soul to do that work because there's very little support of it because it's so ephemeral and malleable and abstract. Whereas, you know, science and truth and the real and the literal is how adults traffic. It's the currency of the real that we value in the West, empirical knowledge, something that is a testament to make anything happen. And it's hard. I think this is why a lot of artists get snuffed out throughout adulthood. And they get snuffed out when they start to commercialize, when they start to talk to presses or galleries, museums who can only see, quote unquote, the numbers, the numbers talk, which is such a a sinister way of thinking about it. But that is the world that we live in. And so I think for, for me, it's all about this balance. I kind of put on a different hat when I go in to talk to the commercial side of things. And I understand and respect that that's what we have to do because the material limitations that we currently live in dictate that I need the book to speak to people. 
just like I have a library. And behind every library is a marketing team and a publicity department. And so until I can beam my poems into each other's heads and vice versa, this is what we have to work with. But a lot of creativity gets snuffed out along the way. And I actually think that adulthood or growing up, if we take it into our own hands, is actually the perfect medium to preserve this, right? Because we're stronger, we have more experience, we're better at protecting our sense of wonder. Whereas when we're children, it gets snuffed out so quickly. Sometimes it's strong enough to last through childhood, but we don't have the tools to defend it and to protect it and to preserve it. And so by the time we, we grow older, we get very cold and bitter. But I think on the other hand, if we make it our adulthood work to revitalize that fire of wonder, we realize we have a lot of skills as adults to really keep that, you know, meditation skills, mindfulness, we can read more. We have so much more capacity to defend. I don't see it as innocence, but I see it as wonder. And it's not about age. You can keep that wonder for as long as you live. It's about the social pressure to snuff it out in order to be productive, quote unquote. And we can easily undo that. And in fact, as adults, I think we're better suited to undo that. You often say that you write to the terrified versions of yourself. Can you say a little bit about how fear factors in your work or what you mean by that? Yeah, I often tell my students, you should scare yourself, but you shouldn't be scared of yourself. And I think often people also ask me, how can you be so vulnerable in your work? How do you do that? What does it take? And doesn't it destroy you? And sometimes I guiltily say, not at all, because this is what I chose to do. And I think this is informed by Buddhism, which is that the world is dark and it could very well get darker. And if you're going to be an artist, you have to look at it. It's what we signed up for, to look long and hard at what is the most difficult part of samsara, of the human condition, and to make meaning out of it, to make something out of it so that it could be shared and understood. You know, there's this idea of questing towards phenomena, which is so important to Buddhists, to me is right there with the task of the artist. And, and so I don't see it as a burden or difficulty. To me, this is to get close to the terror is to get close to the human. That's the job, that's the job description. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Many of the most accomplished artists of medieval Japan, including Ryozen and Sasson, were Zen monks credited by later generations as the originators of a unique and remarkable legacy of ink painting. Mind Over Matter, Zen in Medieval Japan, is currently on view at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art through July 24th. The exhibition displays the breadth of the museum's medieval Zen collections highlighting rare and striking works from Japan and China to illustrate the visual, spiritual, and philosophical power of Zen. Visit asia.si.edu slash mindovermatter to learn more. Now let's get back to our conversation with Ocean Wong. You begin this latest collection, Time as a Mother, with a line from the Peruvian poet Cesar Vallejo, 
who writes, Forgive me, Lord, I've died so little. Can you share a little bit about that epigraph and the relationship you see between poetry and death? I love Vallejo. And to me, it has that quintessential plea to a higher being, which is poetry's classical condition, like Homer, before he began the Iliad, pleaded to the muses, help me, the nine muses, you know, he said, help me do this. I can't do it myself. And so I love that. And in Buddhism, I think that same plea occurs, but it's more horizontal. It's less vertical and it's more horizontal and it's a plea to the world. Help me do this world, right? The books, the people we know, our teachers, present and gone. That's actually the spiritual crisis of the artist is to say that I'm not there. And I think what he means by that, my interpretation of that quote is, I know so little. To die so little, to suffer so little is to know so little. And that pain is also a vehicle of knowledge. It might very well be knowledge itself. And so I think that is actually the seat of a lot of my work. And I I wrote that to kind of remind myself that we're never there, that if the destination is clear in sight, then there's no point of going, no point of navigating the world. And so everything begins with this cry, but also this admittance that we are still so far from the knowledge that we need. You live across the street from a cemetery. And you've been practicing death meditation since the age of 15. And I'm wondering if your relationship to this practice has changed over the years and how it might have influenced your writing. Yeah, it influenced my writing and that it influenced my life. You do death meditation and it's hard to really be mad at anybody after because you get close to this condition that as mammals, we are so terrified of. You know, and I think that's such a beautiful thing. You see an ant and you, you slap the table next to it and it scurries in absolute frantic energy trying to preserve its life. And I think that's such a beautiful fact that we're all in this to stay longer. And then the fact that we have to leave reminds us that there is that final door. And when we think about passing through that final door, it's hard to have these petty thoughts about who does the dishes or who takes out the garbage or, you know, something somebody, a colleague said in a committee meeting or what have you. It all fades away. So it's a really powerful tool to kind of center ourselves back to what matters, to that Noah's Ark. To me, those two philosophies go hand in hand, those two meditations. The death meditation takes us back to the seat, the workshop of the Ark, right? It's like, okay, now that The silly pettiness is out of me for now. I can get to work and I can build something valuable and useful to myself and others. So ever since I was 15, that has been kind of my North Star. But I would say that despite how much death meditation I've done, it never prepared me for the death of my mother. I thought that I was some sort of expert, particularly amongst my family. There were about, you know, eight of us there. And I was kind of leading the way. I was able to read the signs of death and I can tell my aunts and uncles what's happening. And when my mother took her last breath, all of a sudden I realized I was just kneeling next to her bed, wailing, you know, screaming into her sheets. And I realized that there's nothing that you can do to prepare you for the ultimate truth. And there's still, in retrospect, a beauty in that, 
in watching death occur because it is the ultimate truth. Because honesty, for example, is truth that requires a medium. Honesty is a vehicle of truth. But death needs no vehicle. It is itself. And you know, I've never seen something so, so truthful before and so devastating at the same time. I want to ask you about the poem, Amazon History of a Former Nail Salon Worker. You know, it feels like a meditation on death itself. And if you could talk about that poem and the ways that our losses are archived and remembered. I really love that poem because I couldn't have written it as a younger poet. You know, I've been doing this now for almost 15 years, and it was only now that I could write a poem like that. And it's essentially a poem that I made up. It's not actually anybody's Amazon history, but it's a found poem. So there's no syntax. There is no techniques, literary techniques, which as a younger poet, I would be very insecure of writing a poem without my techniques, right? So it took me to be quite mature and confident in language, that the words themselves have their own narrative and that what we are really doing is just arranging. And that sequencing and pattern making is a huge part of being an artist. And, you know, if I wrote this 10 years ago, I would be too ashamed of it. Oh God, I have to do more. But the profound effect of that poem is that the artifacts of living, the detritus, the debris of living is actually actualized in the object. And again, this is what the haiku poets, the Japanese haiku poets already understood contemporaneously to Shakespeare, who wrote in the English fashion of rhetoric. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? It's all about rhetoric and then proving the argument. So the Western sonnet is very similar to an essay, whereas the Eastern haiku is about presenting ideas and objects as they are. And so to me, I'm very proud of that poem because it was using my more global literary theory approach and an Eastern philosophy to say that these objects are enough, that there doesn't have to be a linguistic rhetoric that happens, that is performed. And it's also a meditation of time throughout these months, what's purchased, what's not purchased. And you can map an entire life that way by the residue of living. Did you take these lines from an actual history and put them together, arrange them, and select particular lines, or not? No, no. I totally created this sort of narrative of right. it, you know, to the utmost verisimilitude that I could. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I searched these things on Amazon, and it was really right. fun to see how things are kind of presented linguistically on an Amazon page. It was very beautiful, but also very believable. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's why I think start with truth and then end with art. And I think the go. best art makes life more real, right? So it's actually a cycle. You start with a sense of truth and then you say, well, truth itself is, you know, that's only reportage, right? The artist must do make something of the material. So the truth is a material. And then you orchestrate the architecture, just like you described in that poem, through invention and imagination. And then through that cycle, you arrive back, you read the poem, or you have written the poem, and then you're released back into the world, and the world somehow feels truer, more real, more felt. And that's the magic of art, is that it magnifies life. It's not really a departure from life. It just makes life more felt and true. You know, we're living through a time of so much 
personal and collective loss. And I find it really interesting in a way in this country in sort of dominant U.S. culture where there's such a premium on control, like being in control and the inevitable truths of life, getting sick, getting old or dying, almost feel like you've lost control. So it's like personal humiliation. Because as you were describing your mother's death and your response, I thought there are so many people in this time who have fallen to their knees, like weeping and wailing. And some people feel they can't disclose that even, you know, that that needs to be hidden in some way. And what a tragedy that is, that this is the very thing that should bring us closer together. The, as you say, Duke or loss in life and the vulnerability we all have. And I also thought of the role of creation or making something like poetry in one's grief process, because there's also, I find, you know, such a thing as legacy. It's the way a person's life lives on past the body. And like working with, for example, survivors of gun violence, many of whom have been parents who've lost a child, their great wish is that the child's life not be negated, that it be expressed in some way that one realizes, oh yeah, this was a being. They had impact on their family. They had influence in their community. They were examples of something. And I find that itself like very beautiful and healing in a way in that process. So I'm just wondering about the book and the poetry in your own process of grief. The common narrative around writing is that it should be catharsis and cathartic. And mm-hmm. I don't feel that way. I think it's a conduit of energy. The grief is also an energy. It's never been cathartic for me, but there is a satisfaction in building something that could then be shared. And so I think for me, a book is like a town square. You fashion it the way you dreamed it, but the best part of it is that people get to inhabit it and engage with it and then you know feel however they want to feel and bring their own griefs and joys to it. And ultimately, the poet is an architect. You build a space, a linguistic space, and whatever folks bring to it is valid, you know, then that's, that's really important to me. But I don't think I'm any more free or free of the feelings through it. I, I know more, you know, you say, ah, okay, I could have, I realized I can express this feeling this way. And so you feel perhaps more grounded, but you're not, you know, washed of any of the grief or the feelings. Mm-hmm. Ocean, I'm hoping you can read a couple of poems for us from the collection. Okay. Almost Human. It's been a long time since my body. Unbearable, I put it down on the earth, the way my old man rode dice. It's been a long time since time. But I had weight back there, had substance and sinew, damage you could see by looking between your hands and hearing blood. It was called reading, they told me. Too late. But too late. I read. I made a killing in language and was surrounded by ghosts. I used my arsenal of defunct verbs and broke into a library of second chances, the ER. 
where they bandaged my head, even as the black letters kept seeping through, like this. Back there, I couldn't get the boys to look at me, even in my best jean jacket. It was 2006, or 1865, or .327. What a time to be alive, they said. This time, louder, more assault rifles. Did I tell you? I come from a people of sculptors whose masterpiece was rubble. We tried. Indecent, tongue-tied, bowl-cut, and diabetic, I had a feeling. The floorboards creaked as I wept motionless by the rehab window. If words, as they claim, had no weight in our world, why did we keep sinking, doctor? I mean, Lord, why did the water swallow our almost human hands as we sang? Like this. Wow. So, Ocean Vuong, it's been a pleasure. For our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of Ocean's new book, Time is a Mother, available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much, Ocean. Thank you so much, both of you, for having me. It's a deep pleasure. You've been listening to Life As It Is with Ocean Vuong. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Life As It Is and Tricycle Talks are produced by As It Should Be Productions and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.